Brian McClanahan Show, episode 415. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Like my Facebook page and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. You can find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me an email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com, where it's always free to enroll. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll, and you get the best deals on new and forthcoming courses. You also get great coupons over the year, so you want to get on that site because even if you just get the free class and you want to buy something which actually helps keep this podcast going, I have a lot of classes there, over a dozen now, so you want to get those, and it helps keep this podcast going free of charge. I mean, this is it's a win-win for you. You can also click on that support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can throw a few pennies my way. You can get your Brian McClanahan book plate if you want my autograph on one of my books, you can click on that shop tab at brianmcclanahan.com. That'll uh, get you your Brian McClanahan Show logo and all kinds of cool stuff. You can go to Learn True History, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. That's my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. You can subscribe there and, of course, throw a few pennies my way that way. I teach there with Tom and a whole lot of the great instructors. A lot of great ways to support the show, but the best way to support the show is simply just rating this podcast wherever you get podcasts sharing it around on social media, let people know you listen to the Brian McClanahan show because they're going to listen to it too. Hey, I got this new show. I want you to check this out. That's how we grow the show organically, and it's an important thing to do. I mean, I want people who are engaged and listening, and so I want you to do it that way. So I'll take McClanahan Academy. Trust me, that's a great way to do it. It's a win-win, but if you can help Share it around. That's also a great way to do it as well. And rate it again. And share your ideas with me on what you want to hear. All right. Let's talk about the topic of today. It's coming from this book, A Concise History of the Russian Revolution. I'm going to show it to you. It's Richard Pipes. Now, that's an awesome name for a historian, by the way. Richard Pipes. Just sounds so good. I mean, this guy's got to be a good historian. His last name's Pipes. Um, but this is a really fantastic book if you want to get to the heart of this cataclysmic event in Western civilization, the Russian Revolution. And I want to focus on one part of it today. And that one part of it today is the use of culture as propaganda. This is a title. This is the uh, chapter uh, 14, Spiritual Life in the Soviet Union, Leninist Soviet Union. And it's culture and propaganda. And I want to draw some parallels here because we're seeing a lot of similar things happening in the United States. not exactly the same. One thing about history is that you can't say history repeats itself. It mirrors itself. Why? Because we have humans at the center of all activity. So humans do similar things in similar situations. And the left is predictable. They are predictable. They are predictable because they're going to do the same things over and over again because of their ideology. Their ideology dictates that. You understand leftist ideology, you know what's coming next. 
They're going to do these things, and they're going to have to use certain mechanisms to do it because they know that human nature will oppose it. And I mean, just go into a classroom and say, hey, let's talk about communism today. Everyone gets a C. And you're going to have some students that happens every time. Heck yeah, I'll take a C. I'll take a C because I'm a D student or I'm an F student. I'll take a C or I'm a C student. The A and B students immediately say no. Now, the problem with that is that most students are going to fall in that C range or below. That's good. If you just do, if you had a traditional bell curve in a classroom where you had the same number of F's as A's and C's and D's, I'm sorry, B's and D's and then C's, you think about that. If you had, uh, you know, 20 students, you'll probably have maybe two or three A's, two or three F's. Right, so that's out of twenty, that's already six, okay. And then you're going to have, um, you know, maybe uh, three Bs and three Ds, something like that. So you're up to you're up to twelve, and then you're going to have eight Cs. So if you put the Ds, the Fs, and the Cs together, you've already got fourteen of the class out of the twenty would be fine with getting a C, and six would not. So if you put it to a vote, if people were honest with themselves about what they would want, they would go for everybody gets a C. And I, I had a colleague for years. He called it the guaranteed C. You can, you can make a C in this class. I'll let you do it. You can't make any higher than a C, but you can make a C. I'll do everything open book. I'll let you use your book for everything. You can make a C. That's it. Guaranteed C. And you know what? Much of the class took them up on it because they just didn't care. They were going to get a C anyways or lower. So this is an opportunity for them to guarantee a C. So you see the people at the top, the, the six at the top, six people would, would not like this. So what the 14 below would say, well, they have to be reeducated or they have to be eliminated or marginalized or quiet, silenced in some way. That's what happens with communism because... Many people are going to benefit from it. I mean, it's going to be great for some, but the people that are achievers, well, the only way for them to do that then is to work within the party and then work for the state, but they're going to be dragged down by the bureaucracy and the mindless stupidity of it all. And they're going to hate it. Unless they can... Look, you're going to have mediocrity run the show, and they're going to be the power brokers, and so the people that are really bright are going to be suppressed. Because mediocre people don't want to be shown up when they have power. And that's the problem. And so the Soviet Union is a case study in all this stuff. You know what's coming just by studying the Soviet Union. Look, this is what we get when we try to force communism, Leninism, on a population. This is what you get. You get what Richard Pipes is describing in this book. And I want to go to... Uh, how he describes this. It's on page 315, Spiritual Life. He talks about you know, the fact that the communists were trying to create a culture, and before this. And he talks about propaganda. Let me, let me read that part first. He says, The Bolsheviks, of course, did not invent propaganda. It had been practiced at least since the beginning of the 17th century when the papacy established a propaganda arm to spread Catholicism. During World War I, all the belligerent powers engaged in, the, in propaganda. The Bolshevik innovation consisted in assigning propaganda a central place in national life. Now think about that. Assigning propaganda a central place. Now, we don't have 
centrally directed propaganda, at least on the surface in America anymore, at least, or I say anymore, in America. But we do. Now, during wars, we get centrally directed propaganda. We had uh, we have information departments set up during World War I and World War II and the Vietnam War. This is what they did to try to direct the narrative. But there was this really creepy video out there not long ago of uh, news reporters standing up all over the United States on television saying the exact same thing. And it's all spliced. And they're saying to protect our democracy, blah, 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 about the election or whatever it was. Same exact phrasing. Why? Because the Ministry of Truth, which of course it's not called that, but the Ministry of Truth from the Democrat Party issued the statement that this is what you all have to say because, see, the Democrat Party, which is like the Bolshevik faction, controls the media. They control the mainstream media apparatus in the United States. And big tech is partnering with that now. So you've got media information controlled by the DNC. Not though, I mean, look, once the DNC is in power, so then they control it from the White House, but they didn't have that kind of power when Trump was in office. So they would just control it from the party apparatus. The idea is to control the narrative. As the Bolsheviks did, a central place in national life, propaganda. And this is the blue anon stuff that people are saying, the left's conspiracy th- series. You know, it's a um, Russia, Russia investigation, the Russian co- uh, collusion. That's one of the examples. But all kinds of stuff. These people believe in, in lies. And, of course, those lies get circulated around. One of the other ones is, of course, Trump uh, never, uh, never denounced the very fine people uh, phrase, which, of course, Trump was not applying to the idiots, the, the white nationalists and neo-Nazis that were there and doing nasty things to people. He said he condemned those people. But, of course, the left ran with the very fine people narrative, which was completely false. So this is where propaganda becomes central to the left's agenda. It's no different than what's happening here in the Soviet Union in its early stages in the early 20th century. Previously employed to touch up or distort reality, in communist Russia, propaganda became a surrogate reality. A surrogate reality. In other words, an alternate reality. It's not really reality. It's whatever they craft it to be. Your chocolate ration has gone up. Communist propaganda strove and to a surprising extent succeeded in creating a fictitious world side by side with that of everyday experience and in stark contradiction to it, in which Soviet citizens were required to believe or at least pretend to believe. (laughs) Think about that. Think about all the censorship taking place in America. There's, There's these alternate realities, all this crazy stuff that the left likes to run around saying this is real and you know it's not. They're showing you an orange and saying this is an apple. You're saying that that's not an apple. You, then, are a heretic because you're saying something that's not real. Look, this is clearly an apple. No, that's an orange. No, it's clearly an apple, the left is saying on media. The left, this is clearly an apple. And you, but you're looking at it saying, no, no, it's really not. Yo, education camp for you. You will learn that's an apple. This is what the left is doing. It's right, they're ripping it right out of the Leninist playbook the communist playbook from the early 20th century. If you read it, this is the sad thing where the communism is not taught the way it should be taught in American schools any longer because it's so dangerous to the leftist agenda, to the progressives. It's dangerous to them. 
They want to get rid of it. They want to show, I mean, you have Fauci sitting there with the CCP from, from China, right? We're just buddy-buddy with the Chinese communists now, the Chicoms. We're buddy-buddy with these people. It's crazy. Propaganda. Spouting Chinese propaganda. To this end, the Communist Party asserted a monopoly over every source of information and opinion and in time severed all contacts of its subjects with the outside world. Now, we're not doing that, but of course... We're censoring what people can see, what kind of news they can get, where they can go. We're trying to shut everything down that might be an, an alternative site to them. You can't have that. You can't have alternative media. You see, you can't have a monopoly. We have to have a monopoly on these things if you're the left. If you have alternative media, well, that's we're going to call it all kinds of names. We're going to try to silence it, say these people are bad people because they're, they're not believing the official narrative. It's dangerous stuff. I mean, this is, again, right out of the communist playbook. The effort was undertaken on such a vast scale and with such ingenuity and determination that the imagery universe it projected eclipsed for many Soviet citizens the living reality, inflicting upon them something akin to intellectual schizophrenia. They didn't even know what reality was. I mean, we're doing this all the time with some of the culture war stuff. Up is down, down is up. And the, the, the right is catching on to this and starting to do some really funny things with it, but, and starting to show the hypocrisy and stupidity of it all. And, the, and they can't stand it. The progressives are getting called out. They can't stand it. So their next move is predictable because of what Lenin did. Now, one part of this, of course, is understanding history. And it says the issue divide, he says the issue dividing the Bolsheviks over cultural policy in the early years of the new regime concerned the leg- legacy of the past. One group associated with the proletarian culture movement, which had arisen before the revolution, declared the creations of the feudal and bourgeoisie periods irrelevant to communist society. They were best destroyed or at least ignored in order to unshackle the full creative powers of the working class. The leaders of the Prolet cult, which they were called, who enjoyed the powerful patronage of the Commissar of Enlightenment, proceeded to translate into theory their theories into action with great energy. They opened studios at which workers learned to draw and paint, as well as workshops where they composed poetry. Think about how the left went bananas, went just, oh my gosh, this person is so great. The, the, uh, this lady that did the, the poetry reading at uh, Biden's inaugural, which wasn't really even a poem. I mean, or when she did the thing at the Super Bowl, it didn't even make sense. It was just, it was word salad. This is what they get into. It doesn't even make sense. But I mean, the, the official narrative is that she was great. So if you don't think she's great, well, then you're a bad person. So this is where they get you with these kind of things, right? Now, if you don't agree with it and you're and you're a skeptic, you're a heretic. Then, well, this is where. The, the government steps in. The communist regime under Lenin controlled cultural activities through two devices, censorship and strict monopoly on cultural organizations and activities. Censorship's the big one. Censorship was an old tradition in Russia. Until 1864, it had been pr- uh, practiced in its most onerous preventative form, long abandoned in the rest of Europe, which required every manuscript to be approved by a government censor prior to publication. Well, think about what we're doing now. 
You go to YouTube, you create a, a video. YouTube has to review it before they'll put it out there. You go to Twitter. Twitter can re review your tweets and take them down. Facebook, we have to review it. You try to post an ad on Facebook, we have to review it. Is this even appropriate? You, I mean, everything has to be approved before you can put anything out there. That is censorship. This is what the leftists, the Stalinists, the Leninists, I mean, the Leninists first and the Stalinists were doing in communist Russia. It's where we are now in its predictable form. They have to do this because if they don't, they will lose the narrative. They will lose the war, the, the war over ideas. They can't sustain it because everyone knows it's a farce. Everyone knows that's an orange, but you're telling me it's an apple, but you can't say that. People know it. In 1864, it was replaced by punitive censorship, under which authors and editors faced trial for the publications of material judged seditious. In 1906, censorship was abolished. Amazon taking down books, canceling. Cancel culture is censorship. It is censorship of the highest order. Now, you're not being thrown in jail, but it's what it is. It's right out of the Leninist playbook in Soviet Russia. But again... This is all for the good of Russia. And here we're saying it now. It's all for the good of the United States. All for the good of society if we do these things. It is indicative of the importance which the Bolsheviks attached to controlling information and influence opinion that the very first decree they issued on coming to power called for the suppression of all newspapers that do not recognize the legitimacy of their government. Ooh, wait a second. What have we seen with the recent election? All these people standing up. If you don't agree with the illegitimacy of our office, of where we are, you will be shut down. Where have we seen this before? That was the first order of business. As soon as Biden thought that he won, he starts acting like president, and all the people that said he didn't win, we got to shut them down. Silence them all. They can't be here. Even the president of the United States can't even be on social media. This is exactly what the Bolsheviks, the communists, did to ensure their legitimacy. If you did not say the communists were legitimate, they shut you down. If you don't say, if you, if you don't agree with any legitimate, look, you can't even have a seat. You're the former president of the United States. You make a speech before one of the largest conservative groups in the country and is scrubbed from social media. You can't have it. It's illegal because he questions the legitimacy of everything. And that to them, to the elites, to the Bolsheviks in Washington and the Bolsheviks in social media and the Bolsheviks in corporate America is a challenge. You can't have that challenge. It's dangerous. The decree met with such resistance from all quarters, however, that it had to be suspended. Now, it hasn't met with much resistance here in America because Americans are being cowered into not saying anything about it because cancel culture is real. In the meantime, the printed word was controlled by other means. The new government declared a state monopoly on newspaper, newsprint, and advertising. So there has been some pushback about this. You go out and you get, you have these alternate social media platforms and other things, uh, but they don't have the same kind of reach. And uh, so even if they're not going to directly censure you, they'll try to, sh I mean, look, the corporations, the tech companies would then just shut you down. This is dangerous stuff. I mean, even when Tucker Carlson gets on and talks about this, and I think, you know, he did a pretty good job of that. He didn't go so far as to connect the dots with what's really happening here that has the Soviet antecedents to it. 
This is what this stuff is right out of the Soviet playbook. Now, you I mean it's fun to put the images up there and show these things, but this is right out of the Soviet playbook. A special revolutionary tribunal of the press tried editors who published information that was judged hostile to the authorities. Hmm. Well, we don't have that yet. We don't have a government agency created to do this, but we certainly have censor boards at all big tech companies. And we see in the New York Times, I mean, what they do, they control the narrative. Now, you've got a, I mean, all kinds of people coming out and saying the New York Times is so awful. It's like working for North Korea. I, look, just again, North Korea is an offshoot of the Soviet Union. People recognize North Korea. They don't recognize the Soviet Union. There's a reason why the Soviets were so dangerous. And why we didn't want that stuff here in America. And yet we've got it now in 2021. We're seeing the American Soviet Union. We're seeing it. Just soft, soft version of it, but we're seeing it. Despite these impediments, a free press managed to survive. In the first half of 1918, several hundred independent newspapers appeared in Russia. 150 of them in Moscow alone. But they lived on borrowed time, since Lenin made no secret of the fact that he intended to shut down the entire free press as soon as conditions permitted. I mean, you've got the, oh, we need a free press. We need that. The left, we need a free, we need a robust opposition party. We need a free press. We need these things. They'll give lip service to it while they're working behind the scenes to make sure it never happens. To make sure that other things get shut down. I mean, there are, there are I mean, look, the Democrats are presenting legislation, at, they're doing it to ensure that, Cable companies, satellite companies, internet providers are taking down anyone they disagree with. They're, it's a, it, they're doing this now because they want to ensure they, they love the time when they controlled all the networks and all the information, and they would just win. So the Republicans won't do this stuff, and for good reason. It's un-American, it's Bolshevik, it's Leninist, it's evil, but yet this is exactly what the left wants to do. That occasion presented itself in July 1918, following the left SR uprising in the capital. Immediately after crushing the rebellion, the government closed all non-Bolshevik newspapers and periodicals, some of which had been founded in the 18th century. The unprecedented action eliminated, in one fell swoop, Russia's sources of independent information and opinion, throwing the country back to conditions that antedated Peter the Great, when news and opinion had been a monopoly of the state. This is exactly what the left wants. They want the news and information to be a monopoly of the state. They want to control it all. Because if they do, again, they keep winning. You can't have opposition. Think about what happened when the New York Post tried to publish an article about Hunter Biden, which turned out to be true. Well, that was shut down during the election, because the social media companies decided they were just going to shut it down arbitrarily. But we know now, a lot of this stuff is coming out, trickling out now that it was true. But we had to win, we had an election to win. We can't let that get in the way of that. So we're just going to use our muscle to silence opposition. We have American examples of this too, but, but you see, this is coming right out of the Leninist playbook. Like the Tsarist regime, Lenin's government showed greater leniency towards books since they reach a relatively small audience. But in this field, too, it severely restricted freedom of expression by nationalizing printing presses and publishing houses. All books had to have the endorsement of the state publishing house. Now, the state publishing house in America might as well be Amazon now because it controls so much of the book industry. 
whether it's sales or publication, that it might as well be that. So it can determine what it's going to publish, what it's going to allow. We know Netflix uh, shut down, and this is not Amazon, but it shut down during Black History Month a documentary on Clarence Thomas, uh, the, the black Supreme Court justice, because he's not a leftist. This is the stuff we're getting into. This is where all these things, this leftist antecedent, and that's why I think Richard Pipes is so important to understand these things. A concise history. This is not hard to get through. This is easy stuff. And anybody can read this and say, oh my gosh, you see, this is going on? Look, this is exactly out of the Soviet Union. What are we doing here? The left doesn't care because they're open about it now. They're progressives. They're socialists. They're communists. They're open about it. And Americans, oh, this is okay. That's all right. Really? You want this? Such piecemeal control of information and ideas by the state culminated in June 1922 with the establishment under the Commissariat of Enlightenment of a central censorship office inoculally called Main Administration for Literary Affairs and Publishing. Think about all this stuff that we have. All these government, the Main Administration for Literary Affairs and Publishing. We have this kind of nonsense in the federal bureaucracy all the time. And this is, it's, all, it's all the same. Bureaucracy is the heart of socialism and communism. You have to have it because you get all the mediocre people in there and they become career bureaucrats and they like to control everything and they get the Peter Principle, they get promoted as high as they can to where they're incompetent and they can't do anything. Whereas the people in the, on the other side of it are out working and doing things and producing and so they're going to, well, I don't want any part of that, but the mediocres have to tear them down. You see, that's what it's really all about. Except for materials emanating from the Communist Party and its affiliates and the Academy of Sciences, all publications were henceforth subject to preventative censorship. In fact, it had a section that censored the performing arts. Russians quickly learned that the art of self-censorship, submitting only material that experience had taught them, might have a chance of obtaining a license. And that's exactly what's happening now. Well, I know this is going to get rejected, so I won't publish it. Or I know this post is going to be offending, so I won't put it up there. People are still just naturally self-censor because they know that it's not going to be accepted. So why even do it? Why even put it out there? You see, the just the threat of it has a hammer effect on it. No pun intended, the hammer and sickle. It has the hammer effect. We just won't even do it. It's dangerous. The new regime eagerly courted Russia's writers, but it encountered in this milieu almost unanimous antagonism. Apart from a few poets and novelists willing to collaborate, Russian authors read reacted to the restrictions imposed on their craft in one of two ways, either emigrated abroad or withdrew into the private world. Those who chose the latter path faced extreme material hardships, freezing in the winter and starving year-round. Submission to the new authorities alone guaranteed minimal living standards, but to their credit, few writers sold out. Only one literary group, the Futurists, collaborated with the Bolsheviks from conviction. Futurism emerged in Italy on the eve of World War I. Its adherence then their later back Mussolini, Italian as well as Russian futurists, loathe the bourgeoisie in all its works, yearning for a new culture attuned to modern technology in the rhyme, I'm sorry, in the rhythm of the machine age. Now think about this. Who are these people today? These are the tech giants. We'll go along with this. We don't like the bourgeois. We don't like American society. We don't like any of that stuff. We're the new elites. We're the futurists. And so we'll collaborate with the communists because this works for us, because that's progressive, that's future-oriented. This is the same thing. This, these are the fascists. These are the totalitarian communists. This is what they are. You see, humans do similar things in similar situations. The futurists. 
extolling barbarian brutality. They wanted wanted museums and libraries swept from the face of the earth. The futurists who looked to impulse instead of reason for guidance found fascism and communism attractive because the two movements shared their hatred of effete bourgeoisie civilization. Now think about when we talk about monuments, move them to museums. Well, wait, that's not going to work because then you'll still have it there. So get rid of them. We know museums are being attacked. Anything that has to do with traditional life has to go. And the futurists are certainly part of this. Um, So, I mean, this is, uh, look, I could go on with this because he gets into some of the poets, some of the people who were pushing this futurist idea. Um, But we're seeing all of this in modern American society. It's all happening. It's all happening right now in front of our eyes. But nobody, nobody's paying much attention to it. I mean, if you're on the left in particular, you love this stuff because the right is being silenced. He says, revolutionary drama was intended to separate support for the regime and at the same time instill contempt and hatred for its opponents. To this end, Soviet directors borrowed from Germany's and other Western countries' innovative techniques. They strove above all to abolish the barrier between actors and spectators by limiting the formal stage and taking their place as city streets. Factories in the front, audiences were encouraged to interact with the performers. The line separating reality from fantasy was all but obliterated, which had the effect of obliterating also the distinction between reality and propaganda. I think back to the, uh, I think it was in Minnesota where the mayor walks out in the crowd and it's like this whole different, this whole theater going on here. And the people shouting him down and getting in his face as he's walking away. This is the theater now, the absurd running out into the middle of the streets. Agitational propaganda or agiprop. Theater vulgarized the protagonist by reducing them to cardboard specimens of perfect virtue and unalloyed evil. The mental and psychic conflicts occurring within and among individuals from which the essence of genuine drama were ignored for the sake of primitive clashes between good and bad characters acting as the, their class status dictated. This is what we're seeing everywhere in America now. This is dangerous stuff. And of course, I think that uh, Pipes does such a good job with the culture here. This is where, this is why, and there's more in this Richard Pipes book, A Concise History of the Russian Revolution, that you got to get. I mean, this is, it's so good. Culturally, politically, I mean, getting into the heart of what the, what the Leninist regime was all about, you need to pick it up. And I mean, I could go on with this for several episodes talking about what he's doing here, but this is the heart of the problem with Uh, modern American society. We're shading into this stuff, but yet most Americans don't realize it, and it's really, really dangerous. Um, And until they figure it out, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. We're seeing a lot of things happening in the Soviet Union happening now in America, and it's not, I mean, this is not hyperbole. The the historical examples are there and parallel that with what's going on in America. We're in trouble. All right. Hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I'll see you next time for the next one. See you then.